holding the focus of meditation, let's follow this visualization that Swamiji has given us for this lesson about having a harmonious environment. The essence of a harmonious environment is to express the harmony we feel with all of creation. So we begin in a harmonious relationship to creation itself, and then we naturally extend that into everything that we do. So visualize a clear night sky full of stars. As many stars as you might imagine could be seen not only with the naked eye, but through a powerful telescope. So there's the dark sky, and then there's all these pinpoints of light, some still, some flashing, large, small, some some with slight hints of color, if we were in outer space just looking at all those stars in the heavens. Now feel that each one of those stars is the source of a unique melodic line, unique piece of music. It's vibrating with its own consciousness and that consciousness is uplifting and melodic. feel that each of those melodies is a melody of joy and that all together the melodies blend. So we hear melodies of joy accompanied by rich harmonies filling the universe just beyond what we see with the naked eye. There is this infinite chorus of light and music. And the message of all those star melodies is calling us to the infinite perfection which lies at the heart of all creation. So it's not merely a passive picture. But as we look at those stars and hear the melodies and the harmony, we feel our own consciousness being drawn upward to merge into that infinite sky of light. To sing with those infinite pinpoints of light the unique melody within our star self. Feel as if you are adding your melodic consciousness to the consciousness of all those stars, no longer merely watching, but standing in the heavens and singing with them the symphony of divine aspiration and joy. Feel that this reality is the background the source point for all the little busy things we do in this world is really an extension from that infinite star chorus of which we are a member.
Now affirm with me. I will work with the universe to achieve every worthwhile end in my life. My efforts and thy joy are one. I will work with the universe to achieve every worthwhile end in my life. My efforts and thy joy are one. I will work with the universe to achieve every worthwhile end in my life. My efforts and thy joy are one. Lesson 17, Monious Environment, which will probably be able to come. But we've got some really interesting points in it. When Ananda first started in 1968, 69, 70, the first community up near Grass Valley, which is now, you know, just a exquisite place, although it's still a lot of wild land on a thousand acres. But when it first started, there were almost no buildings, and we, there was almost no money, and we were patching it together for many years just in any way that we possibly could. And also, most of the people who came there were in their 20s. Most of them had come from comfortable homes, um, often dropping out of college, and it was sort of the 60s energy at that time. And there was a tremendous repudiation of the material plane, a sort of glorying in being... Uh, sort of simple and dirty, almost. You know, having been raised quite the opposite, people wore their hair long, the men stopped shaving, their clothes were very casual. It was just, we were hippies, in a sense. Not hippies in the full um, meaning of the term, so to speak, but the, it was hard to tell the difference just looking. In fact, uh, Jyotish and Devi were the leaders of the community. Every once in a while, when they really want to embarrass their son, they'll show pictures of, you know, what they were like when he was growing up and where they lived and how they dressed and how they looked. And, you know, he's inclined to say things like, oh, dad, you know, that kind of thing, just looking at the pictures, even though we all looked quite normal to ourselves at that time. Um, We couldn't afford anything particularly nice, and uh, we, we made do with very little. But we also allowed to come into that energy at that time a certain amount of tamasic energy. Tamasic meaning lazy, downward pulling, um, dirty. You know, just unkempt and not not well cared for. Swami Kriyananda tolerated it because he couldn't fight every battle at once. Just as we've talked in these lessons about his leadership, he concentrated on the essentials and let a lot of other things go. And at one point, a Swami, Swami Chidananda, who at that time was the Um, head of the Divine Life Society in Rishikesh, a direct disciple of Swami Shivananda. He's since passed away, but he came for a visit. And he walked around what we call then our farm area, which is now called downtown Ananda. And there were just piles of broken machines and, you know, old lumber and things just lying around. And he scolded us very strongly. I think Swami Kriyananda was just cheering him from the background. But he scolded us Because he said, you know, not only is it unsightly, he said, but lower astral entities 
are called are, are attracted to disorder and they're attracted to places that are unclean so you actually have you you not only have the effect that it has on your mind in the most obvious sense but you also literally are drawing astral forces that will then make the vibration even lower am i hearing a buzz i'm okay all right um is making the vibration even lower. And he sort of put the fear of God in us a little bit, or you might say the fear of the devil, and it caused people to perk things up a little bit. Um, myself, I was living as a renunciate then. I was unmarried. I didn't plan to be married. And I was very... Um, I'd always been pretty indifferent to the way I looked and uh, my appearance. Well, I was sort of in between. I was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But I didn't have any sense of fashion or style and a lot of times I just was very practical and put the thing away. And I was with Swami Kriyananda and a, and a group of people and we went to Carmel. Every so often he would go away to Carmel for a weekend and sometimes he'd take a small group with us. This was like in the early 80s. No, no, excuse me, in the early 70s. And I specifically remember the wardrobe that I had with me which was a batik skirt, a brown batik skirt that came to my ankles sort of a brown pattern, and I had this sort of shapeless brown sweater that I wore, but I thought it was a pretty nice outfit altogether myself. Um, and I must have had some other garment because I remember I changed clothes once, and I put on that outfit, and Swami just looked at me and he said, don't you have anything better than that to wear? And uh, I saw it, so I changed it into something else. It was like equally unsatisfactory. And he just looked at me and he said, we're going to have to buy you a new dress. I mean, this was like just... Like out of the blue, I'm here. I am trying to be a renunciate. I'm not trying to be an attractive woman. I'm, you know, trying to. He know he paid my salary at that time. I earned fifty dollars a month total, and you know, so it was like there wasn't like a lot of money to go shopping in Carmel. <laughs> it was enough of a stretch to be down there. And he said, "We'll just have to buy you a dress. Your birthday's coming up. We'll make it your birthday present." And then he looks around at everyone else who has no more money than I do and says, "We'll all buy it together for her, won't we?" And everybody just kind of says yes, like this, <laughs> because it was this was a. This was actually Swami teaching us a lot about prosperity on those trips to Carmel because he would just go knowing full well that we had no money and we would just do all these things and somehow it would always work. I would spend my whole month's uh, salary just at the beginning of the month there. But I had a rule, which was whenever it involved being with Swami, I would always, that's still my rule, I will always spend whatever it takes. The ante has upped a lot since then, but I always spend whatever it takes. I'll always spend it for that. And, and everything else just can fall into place and work itself out. And it always has then and now. I mean, then I would spend all the money I had and then I would find money or somebody would give me money or I would be invited out to dinner every night or somebody would just start bringing food over to my house, which is really about all I needed. I mean, but I, as long as I kept my priorities straight and didn't fritter it, I never frittered it. I would always spend it for spiritually beneficial reasons if I had to. Um, And otherwise, you know, I was very frugal. In fact, as I've talked about in here, it was really wonderful because it never crossed your mind to buy anything, period. I mean, it wasn't like you even controlled your desires. You just never let them begin because what would you do with a desire? There was nothing you could do with it. You had to eat. You had to buy heat. And that was about it. And that was pretty much your money. Um, That whole era is a whole other story, which I've shared at different times. So there we are in Carmel, and he says, let's buy her a dress. And me, I am just absolutely, like, frozen. I'd never never been 
any good at fashion ever um, anyway. But, you know, I was especially not good at it at that particular point. What, what you saw of the attractively attired Asha is entirely and only David's influence in my life. To use, to quote Swamiji, you should have seen her before David got a hold of her. These are his exact words. <laughs> so, this was before David got a hold of her. This was, there was before there was a David. So, in our lives. So, he, he just leads us downtown and we go shopping. And he just goes into some store with, you know, right on the main street, Ocean Avenue in Carmel, so you can imagine. He starts going through the, 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 the clothes on the rack like this. And he, you know, he pulls out a couple of things. Do you like this? Do you like this? And I just like, I'm like a deer in the headlights. I don't have any idea what to say. He finally pulls out this um, sh- uh, shirtwaist style dress, sort of a straight line with a little sash. And it was kind of a white, it was white. And it had kind of an eyelet pattern on it. And it was a, a little bit tailored, long sleeved. And he said, oh, this one looks really nice. Do you like it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> take it, go try it on. So I go and try it on. Um, it happens to be... Uh, not exactly sheer, but definitely see-through, and I didn't have any slip or anything like that. So when I come out, you can clearly see my underwear, which was just like so far beyond anything that we would do. And I said, sir, it's a little bit transparent, isn't it? And he, and he just looks at everyone, and he says, just pretend it's her bathing suit. Like that. <laughs> and then he puts me in this dress, and uh, basically would not let me take it off for the whole weekend. So the whole weekend... Fortunately, like a few hours later, somebody else came and they had a slip. So at least I could put a slip on underneath it. So for the whole weekend, I'm walking around in this white dress like this. You know, just like absolutely frozen. And um, at the end of the weekend, when I actually finally got to take it off because we were traveling, I asked him, somebody's been sarcastic with me twice. This was the first time. I said, uh, do I have to wear this at Ananda? <laughs> I mean, like... It cost $100, too, which was like just a stunningly large amount of money. And, and they all had to buy it for me, all my friends, right? Um, I said, do I have to wear this at Ananda? And he said, no. He said, we'll put it in a glass case and make it part of the tour of the farm. <laughs> you know, like, of course you have to wear it, you ninny. But I have to admit, I never did. I, I could never put it on again. I just, every time I'd put it on, I just, I couldn't. It was, it's just everything about it I couldn't wear. And in fact, oddly enough, this is just karma. This is all tangential, but this is karma. At one point, Swami went to Scotland, like 1971, I think on a trip to Europe. And he came back and he bought, for Seva Kalyani and I, he bought all of us uh, wool sweaters from Scotland. The same sweater. He sort of thought it'd be fun to have his three girls dressed like twins because we were always with him. And the color was actually about this shade of blue, which was the color we all wore nicely. So he gave us these beautiful sweaters, which we absolutely loved. When I moved from Ananda Village to here, which was 1987, by now many things had shifted. I packed a box, and in that box was the blue sweater from Scotland and the white dress, which I was still carrying around but not wearing. And in our whole move, that's the only box I lost. And I knew that... God caused me to lose the blue sweater because of my lack of gratitude for the white dress. You know, because I was heart, I was, I I wasn't sorry to lose the white dress, but I was heartbroken to lose the sweater. But I knew it was just absolute karmic justice. You know, you can't be given a gift and not accept it in the right spirit and expect abundance to keep coming. Now, 
All of that has to do about with a harmonious environment, which is what I want to talk about here. Um, what Swami tried to explain to me, which took me a, a lot longer than that weekend to understand, basically he put it like this. He said, Asha, he said, it's we who have to look at you. <laughs> he said, you might think, you know, that you're being this great renunciate, but the fact of the matter is you're an eyesore and we have to look at you. <laughs> he said, it's a great service to people to dress nicely. He said, I, I don't mean with vanity. He said, but it's, it's for other people that you do it. You don't do it for yourself. You do it because when you walk around with a certain amount of dignity, grace, and beauty, then you're contributing that consciousness. Isn't it so? I had a funny experience. You know, we're so casual in California and in America in general, but especially in California, um, that most of the time, well, since I've been in this position, I always try to dress a little nicer than the worst. But this, that's a different story. But we, David and I had to go down to Los Angeles for the wedding of his nephew. We had to fly down on a Sunday afternoon and then go essentially directly from the airport to the wedding. So we got on the plane really quite dressed up, which is very unusual to travel, you know, as dressed up as we were. But it was amazing to me how both of us being dressed like that, just it, it changed my own energy inside, and I could just feel that the way we related, you know, even to each other, to the world, to everything around us, was elevated because we had presented, we were presenting a so much more refined um, point of view. And Swami Kriyananda always dresses, um, whenever he's in public, he always dresses, and I know this is what's in his mind, as master's representative. Because he never knows at what point it's going to be his opportunity to talk to someone about his guru. And he always wants to be presenting, essentially, his guru um, with a refined vibration, and not just with the, you know a sort of casual, messy, lower consciousness kind of energy. I mean, all of us at all time are representing our master's vibration. Whether we specifically talk about it or not, we really are. And the, the first place that that shows is how we present ourselves to the world. And, and Swamiji himself said that he had to learn this from master because he, he came once to greet Rajasi when master was there and he had sort of a torn t-shirt. Master said, change that t-shirt like that. And even in India, Anandamoy Ma, who's a great saint there, you know, people are very impoverished and she has many renunciates. She says, but we're not so poor that you can't wear something that isn't torn. Because when you allow your vibration to go that low, then you begin to get in tune with lower astral forces who, you know, celebrate that kind of disorder, that kind of lack of attention to detail, that kind of lack of self-respect, that lack of dignity, all of those things operate on a lower vibration of consciousness than the one that we want to be on. And except in very rare cases, it's always indicative of some, you know, our inner reality. Again, as I say, we don't have to be vain, we don't have to be fancy, but there's a point at which frugal becomes spiritually detrimental because it lacks dignity. Swamiji often has spoken to us about the word dignity. And he said, you know, a little bit of dignity is a very appropriate thing for a devotee. We should carry ourselves in this world with dignity because we are disciples of a great master. We are representatives of the infinite. If you're alone in seclusion and, you know, there's no one else there, it makes no difference. But whenever you step out in public, 
we should always have in our mind that this is who we are. Now, I'm starting this whole subject of uh, harmonious environment with the self, because that's really where it begins. And um, we need to think about everything we do in terms of the kind of vibration and consciousness that it projects. Because if we're trying to be prosperous, if we're trying to be in tune with the infinite, if we're trying to do good work for a good cause, what we've been learning in all these weeks of these lessons is that it just isn't about the things that we do only. It's about the energy, the consciousness, the vibrations that go into that. Because this universe as we've been talking about over and over again, is really an energy universe. And so every kind of magnetism, every bit of magnetism that we put out has an effect and helps create the, uh, the force that then draws to us whatever results that we're looking for. And so nothing is too small to consider. Now, the point here, though, is not that we're trying to make a personal egoic statement or that we are... Um, afraid to be seen unless we look perfect. You meet people like that who are beautifully attired, but they're always beautifully attired. It's like there's never a moment when uh, uh, they're willing to... They're always made up, is what I'm really trying to say. So we're not really talking about a fear of just being your natural self. You know, the um, Ananda look is a very natural look, but it needs to be an upbeat one. But... uh, uh, what, well, what I, w- what I was saying there is that everything is a projection of our consciousness and we work on these things from both sides. We work on it from trying to develop the inner attitude and then letting that attitude naturally express, but we also need to work on it by making our intended consciousness visible to ourselves and to others Because often the discipline of doing that also helps us to have the right consciousness. You know, Swami's putting me in that dress. I was totally unable to rise to the occasion of that dress. And you know, when I would look at it, I just kept it away. Every so often I would look at it. I mean, it was a simple cotton dress. There was just nothing. It was not an evening gown. It was not sequined. It was not satin or silk. It was a very simple cotton dress. But it just had more dignity than I had in myself. And it would have been really not at all difficult to walk around quite comfortably in that dress if I could have just relaxed into that reality. But that reality, which was really pretty low, was still higher than I was able to stand. But just as I felt when we went down to the Los Angeles wedding, you know, dressed up for a wedding, how interesting it was to be out in public like that. And now, of course, I don't have any hesitation to just... Um, behave accordingly. And I could see what it does for one's consciousness to always have that in mind, and external reminders are often the way that we do it. Now, if we're, if we're going to be serious, Swami talks here about the importance of harmonious environment, and most of this lesson is about where we work in the workplace and what it looks like. But for us as devotees, we really need to start right down at the very beginning. You know, look at our closets. Look at our wardrobe. Look at our shoes. And and nobody's asking anyone to go out and spend vast amounts of money that we don't have. But, But everything sends a certain message and projects a certain consciousness. 
And we have to ask ourselves, and, and the word Swami is using here is harmonious. You know, is what I am, how I am presenting myself, how I am attiring myself, and then we'll go on to our apartment and where we work. You know, does it represent a harmonious attitude toward life? I'm, as a public speaker, I have, I'm, I'm in twofold in this. I mean, until the Naya Swami initiation, when everything changed into this habit. Prior to that, I would always have to dress as I felt to dress to stand in front of people. And I'd, I'd learned the lesson and realized also from watching other speakers that, you know, people have to look at you. My position is, of course, unusual, but people have to look at you. So I would always put great thought. I mean, I still do. It's just I don't have any choices. <laughs> um, into color, into style, into and, and knowing that all of that projects a certain feeling. And is it harmonious? You know, if I'm wearing a print, is it a harmonious print? Is it a jagged print? If I'm wearing colors, what kind of a feeling do they have? What kind of a vibration do they give to people? Do they support what it is that I want to say? Does it support who I am? You know, is it uh, flattering to my whole person so that people won't find it painful to look at me? And of course, the other side of it is, and I'm just a committee of one, I have to look at all of you. And especially for women, for years, everyone would be dressed in black. It would just be so depressing to me that I'd sit up here, you know, on Sundays sometimes, and you look out over a hundred people, and they're all dressed in black. There's just hardly a spot of color in the room. And it was just like such a depressing spectacle when there's so many beautiful shades that people could wear. I've complained about it so much that oftentimes people will come in and they'll say, just for you, and they'll be in pink or blue or green. And I'm intensely grateful because it helps create a particular vibration, you know. And it's um, now we have to then think also like um, um, a great deal of what's fashionable does not project a vibration that we really want to put out. I mean, and nowadays, women, especially women, men is not so bad, but all clothing has become so... I mean, I've always been in favor of comfort, but clothing has become so shapeless and so ugly. It's either shapeless and ugly, or it's incredibly revealing for women. You know, women are just like... They're just sort of lowering the tops, you know. Just, they just lower and lower and lower. And people don't even think about it anymore. They, but they just walk around, you know, sort of with half of their breasts exposed. I am such a prude. That's the only word I can use. I just accept it because I figure it's like it's everybody else's business. If, that, if they're comfortable like that, that's just how they should dress. But when you dress, you have to ask yourself, look in the mirror. What am I projecting? You know, if a total stranger, if somebody from Mars just saw me and didn't know that this was the latest fashion, what would they think? Really, seriously, what would they think? Because you have to realize that it has an inherent vibration. And you have to ask yourself, is this really the vibration that I want to put across? And if it isn't, and I'm not talking about the size or shape of your body, whether you're beautiful or not, that's really quite secondary. It's just like, what kind of a vibration do we want to put across? And then we have to look around at the place where we live. You know, what, what does our own living space look like? It's a very interesting thing to just walk into your own living space and ask yourself, you know, if I didn't know anything about this person, what would I think? Who are they? Swamiji mentions in this lesson about when he was in college, he had this idea that if he took a babysitting job, 
then he could earn a little money and then he would also be isolated and he would have to study. He could study. But then he talked about how he went to this family, he played with the kids for a while, then he put them to bed and then he thought he had all these hours. He said, but he found the, in the atmosphere of the house, it was extremely difficult to concentrate on doing serious work. And he looked around the house and he saw that there were no books, almost no books, just a few current magazines, you know, and I suppose television or whatever else there was, maybe not in those days. But there was no evidence, he said, in the house of serious thought of any kind. And so the whole atmosphere of the house was superficial. And so when he was trying to sit there and be very concentrated and serious about his studies, nothing in the room supported him. And that was, he was just sort of beginning about observing vibrations. So the question also, is one's house orderly? What artistic or visual impression is given? What are the colors in your house? You know, is it filled with stuff? He makes the reference here about a certain, certain offices in India. Offices in India are probably some of the most chaotic and ugly places you've ever seen. He's writing this course also for Indians, so he's really touching on what's going on there. Um, he's writing for India where offices are often really a mess and he's, he's talking about this one place he went into where there were ledgers and everything piled up everywhere and he talked about in that very atmosphere where so much of the past was in front of you all the time he said it was very hard to think about think in any future direction any question that came your tendency was to look toward the past because the past was piled up all around you it was a very interesting thought isn't it and so in our own lives in our own places we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what am I holding on to here? And is it anything that I really want to keep with me? Swami mentions feng shui in here about which I know almost nothing. But when I had to move after 18 years in one apartment in the community, we moved over to Chela Bhavan, which is a freestanding house about 100 yards away or 50 yards away. But still, 18 years in one place, I mean, even though I'm not a person who keeps things. I was amazed by how much stuff had accumulated in that place. So I got one feng shui principle, which I highly recommend because it it just works perfectly. You don't really have to know anything else. The principle is based on this. Whatever it is, every single physical item in your house, you hold it in your hand. And And you ask yourself, what kind of energy do I get from this? Does it uplift my energy to touch it? And if it uplifts your energy to touch it, then immediately you put it in the save box. If you hold it in your hand and it's neutral, it doesn't do anything particularly one way or another, you ask yourself, does this have a practical, actual use in my life? I mean, for example, when I hold a particular cutting knife in my hand, I don't really have an intimate relationship with it, but it's a very good knife. So, you know, it's not beautiful, but I keep it because it's a very good knife. When I hold this one and this one and this one and this one, they're just like, these are the other knives, you know. What do I need with all these other knives? So, I, so those, those you pulled in your hand, and if it takes energy away from you or makes you in any way emotionally agitated, absolutely get it out of your space. Because if you're living all the time with things that don't give you energy and you don't even use them, they just sit there, or worse, on some way they pull your energy down or they agitate you emotionally, don't imagine for a second that that energy doesn't constantly affect you. Isn't that so? You know, you've got to clean out that closet. What are you going to do with this? And in a community like we are, there a lot of stuff goes around, you know, and you end up accumulating things that are okay, but somebody gave it to you and somebody gave it to you and somebody gave it to you. And many of those things are lovely. Sometimes you keep them for a while. 
or just, of course, in the course of life. You just start doing it, especially when we switch from essentially material to the internet technology where you had to have all your reference books and you had to save all these old pieces of paper. I helped a friend clean out her apartment. And, you know, she just had so much paper. And every time we'd pick up this paper, she would say, well, I said, yes, you know, you can find that on the Internet. You can find that on the Internet. And when she really started realizing that, she realized that she had, you know, hundreds of pounds of paper that she really didn't have to have anymore because all you had to do was go into Google and everything that was on those pieces of paper was available better there. But the presence of all of that, it means literally sometimes you can't walk around. You know, you can't get around. You can't find the things that you need. Now, that's just one part of it. The other part of it is what colors do you have in your apartment? You know, how much furniture are you, do you have there? And how much of it is actually needed? Because the space between things, and Swamiji talks about this in the workplace, the space between things is also part of how the energy can flow. If, you, if the energy in your life is, you feel like it's blocked or it's not moving as dynamically as you think it should, look at where you're living and ask yourself, what are you, how, what kind of blocks are you putting up? And ruthlessly, the other rule of the feng shui thing is whatever you're going to throw away, put it into an opaque bag so you can't see it. You know, you just close it up. I took uh, hundreds of pounds of things out of the apartment when we moved from the apartment to the house. And as I said, I'm not a keeper. I'm not a person who even hoards things. But I was astonished by how much it accumulated. And I can't think of one thing that I've ever even thought about since then. You know, just so much stuff. And as soon as you put it in the bag and close it, when we first moved here, for two years our stuff was in storage. And after two years you think, you know, what could I have in storage? I've just lived perfectly normally. One of the things we had in storage was a box of garbage that we had accidentally stored. But that was really, that's probably, was probably when I threw out the box with my white dress and my sweater in it and I put the garbage box in instead. We just opened this box and it's, you know, just like totally solidified blue mold just sitting there. Unbelievable. But anyway, (laughs) it sort of epitomized a lot of, you know, the other things that were there too. Okay. Because... If, if energy is not... The other factor is, you know, you ask yourself, why am I holding this? I, I know I was helping someone clean out their closet. I'm a very good what I call Shiva. Shiva is the god of renunciation and also the, the destroyer. He, he represents the destroyer of ignorance. But the Shiva energy is the energy that just sort of burns through and makes you let go. And so I'll say to people, you know, if you're ready for Shiva, I'll come over and help you. But I'm ruthless. We'll just set up, you know, we'll set up a few principles and then everything that they pick up, you know, we'll just check the principles and see if it works. And if it doesn't, it goes away. But, you know, I was helping someone, woman clean out her closet. I'm she had the most incredible closet. Pull out some dress. Well, that was my favorite. I said, when? <laughs> when was this your favorite, you know? You would never put this on again. And even if you wanted it, you could buy it. You know, you're not that impoverished. You haven't had it on your body in 15 years. You're just holding it there because you remember that it used to please you. But heavens, let's move on. Okay? Now, that helps create this harmonious flow of energy. And, and you can start with your living space because you have complete control over it. Then you ask yourself, what are the colors of this space? And we don't always have control. I mean, um, at the present moment, we live in this lovely house. We lived in a nice apartment before this. But sometimes you just live in a very simple place. It's not like you have to be wealthy. 
You don't have to be architecturally excellent. You don't have to have a view of the bay. But whatever you have, make sure that within the confines of what you've got, it's clean, simple, and the energy is clear. Because if it's blocked up where you're living, if it's blocked up on your own body, you're going to find it difficult to have it flow anywhere. And you can, that way you can just start really small. Start with the shirts that you put on in the morning. And you know, just because you have this one doesn't mean you have to keep it. If it's ugly, I cleaned out his closet once. I, he wouldn't get let go of his... I, he, he annoys me. <laughs> I'm not going to say your name on the tape. I, <laughs> I admire his frugality. It's unbelievable. But he had the ugliest t-shirts. I finally actually literally bought him t-shirts. I made a deal. If I paid for them, he would throw them away. He threw away three for every one that I bought, right? Or two. We had some misunderstanding about how many was going to throw away. (laughs) But Naya Swami has helped a lot. (laughs) I was waiting. I didn't know whether I would point to you or not. (laughs) But you know, if you do outdoor work and stuff like that, you have to have funky clothes. You You can't mess up good things. But at all times, you can still have dignity. You can always have dignity. Okay, then, then the next, after you work with... where oh, but the, And the other thing is, what kind of art do you have? Swamiji talks about art in the workplace, but also what kind of art do you have at home? And another, I'm going to put up another one. You know, what is your, what is your home a shrine to? I know some homes are a shrine to the family. And some homes, when, in, in David's, David's mother... Um, who, who did not keep anything. I mean, she was at 85. Almost all her closets were empty. I mean, she just stayed... She was absolutely current at all times, which I really admired. I mean, when she died, there was nothing in the house except just the few things that she was using, a few nice things that she'd accumulated. She and her husband were both like that. Just why, why hold on? The only thing that she held, which I was... I was touched by it. When you came into her house, she had three children... And there were portraits of her three children across the mantel. And, and they were portraits when the children were like about eight or nine years old. And there were almost no pictures of them much older than that. Just a few slipped under a glass on her desk. Because that was when they belonged to her. <laughs> That's what I finally figured out. I mean, that was like the epitome of her being their mother. And then after that, they sort of got, started living her own life. So she kept the, the recollection of that part of her life. And I mean, I was so amused by it, I sort of really looked around to see, is there any other picture? And she had a glass top desk and she had slipped a few other pictures in there. So you saw them a little bit older. Um, But a lot of times we have happy memories or family or experiences, but then we freeze them in pictures. And then we put those pictures up all around us But then we have to ask that same question. We have to really hold those things and ask ourselves, what does this really do to my vibration and my consciousness? You know, does this really lift me or does this hold me back? I know uh, this is not popular wisdom, but of course I come from the tradition of self-realization, which is also the tradition of um, renunciation and also the tradition of reincarnation which is to say that when, the, when one life ends, you're really just stepping into the next room and you're starting, or I should say you're continuing the story. But all the specifics of where, what you have been in this life, 
your consciousness and your vibration goes forward, and your relationships that are significant will reoccur in new forms. But the whole identity is, is not there. I had a dream once. Some of you have heard this before, but I love to contemplate it. I had a dream once where I was going to be executed. And it was just kind of a kind of casual situation. I was going to be executed, and a, a man who's a very good friend of mine, who's actually sort of a father figure to me, and a sort of strong, capable man, he was my executioner. And we, I was going to be executed with one of those battle axes, you know, with the curved blade, just like a cartoon battle axe, right? And there was like a chopping block. And my friend had the battle axe, and I was going to have to put my head down like this, and he was going to chop my head off. And we were just kind of talking casually, and then, you know, it became time for me to be executed. And, you know, he was a little bit apologetic, but it was fine, you know, because this just had to happen. So I walked over, and I put my head on the chopping block, and I was completely relaxed. And, but, and then, but just before I was actually going to have my head cut off, the thought of physical pain crossed my mind. Dying didn't seem to bother me very much, but the concept of pain was really annoying to me. And then I remembered what Master said, that when the soul knows that the body is about to be smashed to bits in one way or another, that it actually withdraws just before the point of impact. So people uh, people who have near-death experiences will talk about that. Just before the cars collided, they suddenly find themselves above it. And, you know, saints who are martyred just before the fire comes, that they're pulled out of it. Because what's the point? In fact, there's an incredible story told about uh, Edgar Casey, who was, I think, in an office building or a department store, and an elevator, uh, he was trying to take an elevator, either up or down, and, he, and the elevator door opened, and he, he was going where he needed to go, but he, he looked in and he, he just hesitated and didn't want to get in the elevator, and the door closed. And uh, that elevator started to move, and then the cable broke, and the elevator crashed many floors, and everyone in the elevator was killed. And then Casey realized he hadn't even, like, uh, it hadn't even been a rational thought. But he realized that none of the people in the elevator had an aura. That the energy had already withdrawn because they were just a minute from their death. And so they just looked so unnatural to him that he immediately drew back and didn't want to go into that energy. Now, it's amazing on many levels, but not the least of which is that God takes care of us. We don't have to be afraid. So they, they didn't feel it. They were already in the astral world and they just watched their bodies break just like, you know, I throw the book on the ground. It doesn't hurt me. I had it in my hand, but it's not me anymore. Well, in my dream, so I'm right there. I'm about to have my friend drop the battle axe on my neck and I was a little afraid and then I remembered, oh, that's right. Just before the, it strikes, I'm going to pull out of my body so it won't make any difference. So I just laid my head down and he raised it up like this and I sort of felt it coming. And then apparently I was decapitated because... Just at that moment, my soul just went way up. And all of a sudden, I was looking down on this scene, and I could see it was taking place on this huge empty stage. It was a very interesting moment. Huge empty stage. And then, to my everlasting delight, I looked down and I said, Bye-bye, Asha. (laughs) Bye-bye. Just like that. And I thought, Oh, Lord, please let that be the truth. You know, when... This incarnation is over. Let me just turn and just say bye-bye. You know, without all the gripping and the holding and the lamenting and the, you know, regretting and all of those things. Let me just be so current that just walk away like that. I've loved that dream for that reason. Now, um, in that context, when my father was uh, 
at the end of his life, he lived in a, a retirement community, whatever the euphemism is for. He had al- Alzheimer's, and so he lived in a special unit for people who's, who are memory impaired. And uh, and so I would go, vi- I'd go visit him often, and I would see a lot of the other rooms, and I would visit other people. And, you know, some of the people... Elderly people, 80s, 90s years old, they lived in these shrines to their families. You know, these pictures upon pictures upon pictures of the whole clan, and everyone thought it was so wonderful. You know, look at all this. But I thought to myself, for heaven's sakes already, just, you know, forget it. You're so close to just annihilating that identity. You don't want to go out clinging to all of this. There's a tradition in India of the four stages of life, which are, um, and the last stage being sannyas, of course, you can actually take sannyas, which is the state of renunciation at any point you like. But in this ancient tradition, the last stage of your life, especially the very end of your life, you just renounce everything. You walk away and you go off and live in the forest. And you renounce whatever identity you had. Um, in, the, in the Mahabharata, um, when the war was finally over, the Mahabharata is the great epic of India, and Yudhisthira and his brothers were finally installed, you know, in their position. But that their parents, their elder generation, their beloved mother, and all these people that they'd been doing this for, at that point, just renounced the world. They'd been kings and queens, and they just walked off to the forest. They'd had enough. Because you're going to have to leave it anyway. You might as well get your consciousness set in that way. You know, learn, you reflect and learn what you need to learn, and then let it go. So walk around your house and ask yourself, who am I worshiping? How am I defining myself? If a person walked into this house, what would be the primary value that you see in this house? You know, by color, by art, by artifacts, by photographs. What am I keeping here? And it's not that you shouldn't have any pictures of the people in your life, but it's all just a question of thinking about who, who am I really? Now, this is from a reincarnational self-realization point of view. But we're trying to be in harmony with the greater reality. This whole course is about how to act in harmony. That was our affirmation today. Act in harmony and joy with the universe as it is. How many times have we talked about nishkam karma? Action without desire for the fruits of the action. Dealing with things as they actually are. You know, being in the present moment, timelessness, being in the now, not allowing yourself to be defined by past or future. Look at your living space and then expand it out to your workspace and ask yourself, how many of these values are represented here? And if they're not, begin to chip away at it. And depending how far away you are from it, you know, you can't necessarily do it all at once, but start picking up the items in your house and in your workspace and ask yourself, Is this helping me? All right, let's take a short break and then we'll go on from there. Okay, I've called for questions and I'm about to have one, but it's not related to this class. It's related to previous ones. It's from uh, about three classes ago. Um, This is about uh, what Swami was saying about uh, to try to attune yourself to what you must do, what is trying to happen. Um, And I'm just asking, how do you... How do you uh, coordinate that with your meditation? Do you ask a question beforehand or pray about it or just what? Try to attune yourself to what's happening, what's trying to happen. How do you coordinate that with your meditation? Yeah, what I want to give and uh, what will people want to receive? 
Oh, that whole section. That, yeah, about remember. trying to be in tune with yeah. what's trying to come through you. Um, you know, first I have to say, it's not something that, oh, I'm about to meditate, so I think I'll try to have this attitude. It's, it's more like um, it has to be a kind of constant practice to try to be in tune um, with a very sincere expression of your own nature. Because when we're asking, what does God want me to do? It's not like, oh, God wants to be a, me to be a trapeze artist, you know? It's just like going off and doing something that has no relation to us. What God wants us to be is he wants us to be um, deeply centered in our own reality and to calmly and courageously just walk through the hand that we've been dealt, so to speak. It's not like it's a big mystery. People are often thinking that there's just this big mystery, that there's just something that's going to come in from the outside and it's going to tell me who I'm supposed to be. Really, pretty much, you're supposed to be probably what you are because that's why you are what you are is because that's who you are. That was really a brilliant statement, but you understand what I'm trying to say? The way Swamiji put it another time, which I always really enjoyed, he was talking about a certain teacher whom he thought was a little affected. He said he felt like that man was always pretending to be spiritual. And he said he didn't really appreciate that your sainthood is just the refinement of what you already are. So our attunement with God is just, I'm a person who likes to grow flowers, so I grow flowers with the divine spirit. I'm a person who... um, you know, likes to work outdoors, so I work outdoors, but with a divine spirit. I'm a person who has a lot of emails to answer, so I try to answer emails with a sense of harmony and flow instead of resentment and pressure. Um, I'm in a position where I have to patch together a lot of little jobs to make a living. So I try to to just feel that that's a, a, a wonderful opportunity, and I'm just going to do that in company with the divine, without resentment and fear. And so what God wants of us, first and foremost and above all, is the right consciousness. So a tremendous amount of difficulty that we make for ourselves is that we think that God wants something specific from us. As Swamiji said, you have to be very, very advanced before your karma becomes that, that specific. Prior to that, we're really just working on doing whatever it is that we have in front of us to do in the right spirit. So above all, what God wants of us is to be happy. So when we pray in our meditation, help me to do that which is, you know, trying to happen, it's just sort of saying, I'm just going to go on cheerfully and as intelligently as I can, Lord, and you just have to stick with me on this. And and you, you say things like, this is the best idea that I have. If you have a better idea, help me. You know, and I'm going to go out today looking for... See, sometimes also I feel like people become superstitious. Okay, God, if you really want me to take that trip, then give me three signs before lunch. You know, so you see the letter of the country and the headline of the newspaper, you know, and and then somebody speaks to you in the language from that country, and then you walk by a travel agent, and the three signs from God. I need to be more respectful than that, but... There's a difference between attunement and superstition. And also, you can't just put it out. Okay, God, I'm going to give you one more chance, you know. (laughs) It's just, it's presumptuous. It's better to just be humble 
and do your best. And, and the real receptivity comes from a genuine cultivated faith. And a, a genuine cultivated, by the word what I mean cultivated, is a conscious thing that you've worked on for a long time, which is faith that you're not going to be abandoned. You've never been abandoned before. You're not going to be abandoned now. And um, common sense. Just like, okay, this is what we see to do. And it's like guidance has a funny way of kind of coming in the back door. And then suddenly you find yourself doing things and then there's a great flow about it. It, 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 it and, and I don't mean to be only just like how it works in my life because I know and it's happened to me too sometimes you just suddenly know that you're supposed to do something it's just a good idea and it will just pop into your head like an inspiration but when that happens you don't have to ask the rest of the time it's just I'm just going to do the best I can Lord and keep me company and and if you've cultivated receptivity then he will keep you company But if you've never asked except when you have a problem, you're probably not really going to be able to hear at that point either. It has to be a constant battle with the ego's tendency to put you out of tune, you know, with fear, anxiety, lack of living in the present, wrong attitudes. And so you you battle that all the time. And then what's trying to happen simply will happen because you won't be blocking it. Does that make sense? Now you specifically asked, how do you work with it in your meditation? Well, you meditate, first of all, and you try to not allow your anxieties to interrupt your meditation and just the practice of trying to do Hong Sa, do Kriya, you know, energize, do the, listen to the Om without allowing anxiety to creep in is one of the ways that you work with it in your meditation because if the anxiety creeps in, then you, you can't really feel that presence. And then, of course... It doesn't hurt to be explicit, you know, when you're really calm, to say, Lord, you know we have a problem, you know, and you need to help me sort through this. But above all, what we pray for is just to be in tune, to be a good person, to be an instrument of the divine, a good person in the sense of a divine person. Okay, Lord, I have lots of choices in front of me, you know, but above all, what I really want is to be in harmony with you, so here we go. Let's make it happen in the best way we can. And then everything else will take care of itself. Put your attitude in the right place and everything will take care of itself. And then there's specific things. You know, if you have specific, if you have this job or that job or this decision or that decision, when you're very calm, you can hold things up to the light and and sort of just see how they feel in um, that state. You know, do they, just like the feng shui, I mean, do they resonate? Do they feel uplifting? And if you don't get a clear answer, then you just tell God you're flipping a coin and hope that he runs the coin. Because sometimes you don't get a definitive answer and you have to make a decision. So you just do the best you can. And figure a lot of times it doesn't matter. It's just a question of how you respond to it afterwards. Does that make sense? Okay, that's a good question. Any others while we're doing this? Yes, Saranya. This is about keeping things and saving things. Um, sometimes people give you things and will be hurt if they don't see them in your house somewhere. Or you keep it for a while, even, you know, especially things that kids made you know, 20 years ago, and you keep it for a while. And I happen to not be uh, an emotional, um, uh, nostalgic kind of... And so then I, you know, I feel guilty when I'm... Re- 
put it in, by, not in the trash, but Goodwill. <laughs> you know? I mean, I wouldn't mind putting Goodwill it in, in another city sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, how do you deal with that? And you know, especially I guess with other people around you who might feel hurt that you didn't. Get. In fact, an example: when my oldest daughter moved out of the house, her bed almost immediately turned her bedroom into a workspace for me. And she came back hurt. She thought I was going to leave it like a shrine. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, um, we have to... I'm not a parent, and so I'm not, I don't deal with all the incredible complexities of family relationships personally. I have the incredible complexity of having about 500 friends in the context of community that I've known for my for decades, but families are yet something else. I think it's a balancing act. And at a certain point, you have to declare your freedom from other people's emotions. And yes, I mean, I'll display things for a time, sometimes even for a year or two. And then after I feel that I've done my duty, I'll just take it down. And you know, and just, it's, it, you, if we live our lives for everybody else, we don't have any life. And, and it's, but it's a very fine balance. You have to ask yourself, you know, just where is the balancing point? How much does it hurt me? How much does it hurt them? At what point are their requests completely unreasonable? You know, and you know, I, I, I keep boxes sometimes, you know, that have all the things in them. They've gone out of public display, but they're still in the box. And every so often I look at them, and then eventually the box goes away. It's just not... It's just not possible. You cannot please everybody's little whims. You have to decide what's righteous and what isn't. In the case of grown children, grown children have a very interesting relationship to their parents. They own them, and their parents live entirely for their pleasure. That's how children are. I remember so clearly this. I mean, this was a little child, but this little child was born looking like an imperious old woman. She just had this old woman's face on her little tiny body. From You know, we're blessing this so-called baby. She's just... You know, looking at us. And until about the age of three, she just always looked like that. I said to her father, I said, she always looks like she's a, a, a woman just wondering, where are the servants? Why aren't they here? Like this. And I said, I said to him, but she sort of finally stopped looking like that. She looks a little more like a little girl now. He said, well, that's because she found her servants, her mother and me. <laughs> it was true, actually. But you know, that children just... And it's, children are a lot older before they realize that their parents actually have a separate reality. They just, and you know, in, a, in an appropriate way, parents have to make sure that they don't get blackmailed into um, perpetuating that delusion. I recall reading this woman talking about the empty nest and taking her daughter to college and then crying all the way home and you know, then just feeling so sad for a week and then feeling really good. <laughs> when she just finally realized it was done, you know, it was over. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, it, but it's... I'm free, I'm sure. I'm mean, looking at both of you and I know how many children you've raised together. And yeah, no, it's, that's just what it is. But you, you make it up in other ways. You know, you make it up in kindness and consideration and real support when real support is needed, but you don't have to give your life. 
to your children, nor do your children have to give their life to you. It has to work both ways. Yeah. I know um, in my book about Swami Kriyananda, I described that <clears throat> interchange where Swamiji made a, a bold spiritual suggestion to a man. It was a bold suggestion. He, he said, oh, but my mother would be so disappointed. Swami said, sooner or later, you're going to have to disappoint your mother. He universalized a little for the book. I mean, it was very specific. He says, you have to be prepared. To, everyone has to be prepared to disappoint their mother. You know, Swami had to disappoint his parents profoundly. But you know, something there, there are greater realities than family. And that's not always accepted. But if you think in terms of reincarnation, how many parents have we had? When Davy uh, was giving birth to their, own, their first and only child, and she was, um, the, she was, it was a home birth. This was like, you know, in the 1976. We had a very, very competent midwife as part of our community. So a lot of people had home births. And uh, I think it had progressed a little faster than they realized. And she was in that transition period where I guess a person can get a little bit nervous. And suddenly she was a little nervous. She'd been quite courageous. Suddenly she was a little nervous about it. And she sort of was asking Jyotish to support her a little bit so she wouldn't be so nervous. And he said... Davy, he said, there's nothing to be concerned about. You've probably given birth to enough babies to populate the whole city of Sacramento. <laughs> and, she, and she said it was genius on his part because immediately the picture in her mind was of Denny's with all of these souls going in and out, you know. <laughs> and all of them had been children of hers in past lives. If he'd said Paris or Rishikesh or something like that, she said she would have been able to sort of get lost in this grand picture. But when he said Sacramento, <laughs> it just made her laugh and brought the whole thing, you know, to a calmer place. And then the birth was not so difficult. But we have. And it's just, of course, if your relations don't share your ideals... You just have to do your best. And sometimes you do antagonize people. You just have to decide whether it's worth it or not. I mean, it's just impossible to please everyone. And most of them don't really have your best interest at heart. They're just thinking about themselves. Someone was talking to me recently about a choice they had to make between whether or not to go see Swami Kriyananda or to go to a family function over the 4th of July weekend. I, I mean, I had to say frankly, I said, you know, why does your family want you to come there? They just like having you around. Do they, are they actually thinking about what's best for you? Are they really committed to your spiritual welfare? Do they have any idea what they're asking you to give up just to sort of go hang around with them? You know, are, are they really thinking about your welfare? Or are they just thinking about their own uh, pleasure in it? And that was, you know, pretty much the deciding point. It's not like his family's bad or anything like that. It's just um, they don't know what he's doing. And they always want him around. That's what a lot of parents are like. They just always want you around. They're not really selflessly thinking about you. It just, it's just the truth of it. It's very rare parents that are, can really actually do that. Now, all this doesn't have a lot to do with harmony in the workplace, but it's a really important subject. It does, because it has to do with determining where your reality actually is and then having the energy and the courage to live with it. And, you know, there just comes a point where your, your energy comes from inside. And it just doesn't come from other people's approval. And that doesn't happen overnight. But that happens from just a very steady, slow. And 
it has to be the right kind of energy. You have to also be selfless. You can't be doing it just for your convenience. You have to be doing it because it's genuinely all right to do it. If it's just a matter of, oh, I can't be bothered, that's not a good reason. If it's just, oh, I can't be bothered, that's not good. But if it's really a very impersonal sense of this is an appropriate action, then I should take it. Fair enough. It's, it's very tricky. I really know it's very, very tricky. I remember when, toward the end of his life, no, not the end, about the middle of my, my parents in the 30-some years that I was part of Ananda while they were still living, they kind of, sometimes they liked it and sometimes they didn't. They just kind of would, as far as I could say, more or less randomly shift around. And at a certain point, after I'd been in Ananda more than 20 years, they started sort of slightly turning against it. And, I mean, I just said to my father, you've got to be kidding to actually think that if you start doing this at this point, it's going to have any influence on me. It's like all this is going to do is just going to create really bad will between us. I said, don't do it. It was just like no contest. And to their credit, they just backed off. I don't know what they thought privately, and I didn't really, that was their business, but they never brought it up to me. You know, so it's like at certain times you just have to take a stand. Sometimes you have to own your own house. Thank you very much for all the beautiful things you've given me. Sometimes you can return things to people. This was such a beautiful picture, and I've enjoyed it for a while, but you know I'm really not going to display it anymore in the way that it deserves. Maybe you would just like to have it back. You write lovely long notes and tell them how wonderful they are, and then you just give it back. (laughs) I mean, you know, but you do it in such a way that you really are appreciating. I appreciate that you gave it to me. I was so pleased when you had it. I can see that it's lovely, but I'm clearing out my space now. And what would you like me to do with it? Yeah, you picked it out so lovingly. What would you like me to do with it? Shall I pass it on or would you like me to return it to you? You can have it then or enjoy it. You know, what are people going to do with that? It's all up front. You're not sneaking around. Yeah. And when people don't see anything in your house for a while, they'll stop giving you things too. I mean, it's nice to get gifts. I've gotten some very, very, very touching gifts that were very carefully selected, and I, I love them for that reason. I don't necessarily keep them forever. Sometimes they have a certain life force. You know, they're just really nice for a while. And then they crest. Then they can go on. And you don't crush them and throw them away. You just pass them into a new reality, and somebody else will say, oh, what a treasure. You know, things don't cease to exist. Now, Swamiji has some very interesting things about harmony in the workplace but I have hardly touched on any of them, but I, I think that I've touched it indirectly by talking about other atmospheres. It seems like such a straightforward letter, lesson that I didn't need to say a lot. What was really interesting, though, and I just want to bring it out, is when he talks about the qualities of different colors, he goes through the whole rainbow, and he talks about the, the different kinds of reds and how different ones affect you in different ways, and they're quiet red shades, balanced against other colors such as gold and yellow, can help influence the mind to be wakeful and relaxed. And then he goes and describes his home in India, which is his house in New Delhi. And when when he furnished his house in New Delhi, he was very, very exact about things. And he put into this room where they often watch videos or just have informal satsangs, he made the room this sort of, just what he writes, this sort of dark shade of red with gold. And then he, you can be relaxed but wakeful. I was very interested because he was very specific and it was like not a color combination I would have predicted him to choose because he, red is not necessarily a color that he 
often chooses, but it was a certain dark shade of red, just exactly what he said. And exactly what you wanted in that room was for people to feel um, relaxed but wakeful because it was a place in which people interacted in a very casual way. It wasn't a serious satsang room. It was a relaxation room, but they didn't want us to go tamasic in that room. Amazing that he says that. Bright orange should be used with care, he says. Pure orange can uplift the mind, but he uses this word, a more violent shade will draw attention excessively to itself. Now think about the color they use for the highwaymen. They use that violent shade of orange, don't they? Because when you're going down the road, you absolutely cannot miss seeing it. So he says you have to be careful about that. Probably be careful about wearing it, careful about using it, because it can distort the harmonious balance because it's such a forceful color. A soft yellow helps to stimulate mental activity. And then, he, and then he encourages you to go toward a golden yellow instead of a lemon yellow. And that this is like, you know, color are very specific vibrations and color healing, in fact, is a very um, interesting, uh, not yet highly developed in this yet in our culture. But, but we all feel the energy of color when we took the Naya Swami vows and had to change into this blue as the only color at first, when I first contemplated it, I was not, um, I didn't know exactly how I would cope. That's how I would put it. There was no hesitation that I would do it. But I wondered how I would cope because I'm, I've been so attuned to color. You know, and when, when I would get up in the morning, very early after waking up, I would always ask myself, what color do I want to be today? When I come out to teach, I would decide, what color should I wear? You know, what class am I giving? How do I feel and the thought of not having access to all that color was very hard for me to accept in principle. I accepted it because that was a higher value. Now, interestingly, because this is the only color I wear, this Nyaswami blue or closely related shades to it, I've become so um, resonant with this blue color that now I can hardly imagine putting on any other colors. I joked with people that I didn't dye my pajamas because it seemed so fanatical. But now I really wish I had. (laughs) Because I just want to be surrounded in this color all the time. It has a particular significance, you know, spiritually, and it's a certain vibration. But what he's saying is, don't be casual about color because color speaks. I was very struck with um, the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, that wonderful artist who does the great big flowers and she was also a character herself and she always dressed in black and white and she always painted her studio a very particular shade of gray you know just like a very exact hue of gray was she had to paint her studio walls that color so she could paint there and when someone asked her why she wore black and white only she said color has such a profound effect every single color she said I can't imagine wearing it you know, it was just like she couldn't walk around in it because every color said something so dynamic to her. The only way she could deal with it was black and white. And the only way she could deal with the color in her studio was to have this very, very neutral field behind it. Isn't that interesting? But she was, of course, intensely sensitized to something that's happening to all of us all the time. That's why when I look out at a room full of people dressed in black, I think, you know, what are they attuning themselves to all dressed in black like that, wearing black all the time? Like, where, where, what kind of a vibration is that? Is that really the vibration that we want? People have reasons for doing that. But if you dress in black, you know, 
wear a color around your wrist or around your neck or pinned to your lapel or something, you know, just somewhere where you can bring some of that light force in. Um, green, he mentions as a healing color. It's also relaxing. And he says it's probably good for restaurants. He's just so good. But he said you don't want it to be in shops where you want people to spend money because I guess it's too relaxing and it's not motivating to them to do anything. I've been working on costumes, making some costumes for the play, the peace treaty that we put on every summer, Swami's play. And in the, the play, there are five clans and the five clans have five colors. It's yellow, topaz, ruby red, amethyst, purple, um, azure, blue, and then emerald green. And I had to work with all of the other colors and I finally started working on the green one today. And I was, I was beginning to not like this part of the project very much and I was anxious to finish it. But amazing, when I picked up the green today, after working on the red and the yellow, I just loved working on the green. And then I read this later in the day. You know, green is very relaxing. Somehow, suddenly all my angst about the project just went away because I had to make seven pairs of trousers and it was getting really boring. This was the seventh pair. And it's just like, it was so pleasant. And it was, it was just literally, the green was so harmonious. I, I was completely entranced with it all day long. So he says, very relaxing. And then he says, blue is expansive. And then he even says, indigo is good for spiritual things, but it's not good where outgoing energy is needed. Amazing. And violet, violet is excellent for reading or writing poetry, for studying or writing works of spiritual inspiration. It offers less support to outward activities. Amazing, isn't that so? And then he talks about white and so on and goes on. But those are just a few of the keys that he mentions in here. The rest of the principles are all the ones that I talked about when I was talking about our personal living spaces. But all of that, he's talking about your own personal space and then the degree to which you have influence if you're, if you're helping support others or in, in the place that you live or work, you know, what the degree to which you can influence it, either by your own attire, by your own tiny space, by the decorations you put on your wall, be an instrument of right vibrations, and then you help bring in right consciousness, which brings in right magnetism, which brings success. Okay? Any questions or thoughts before we call it a night? All right. Well done. Thank you. So I think that we've done 17. We'll do 18 next week.